scripture reading this morning will come from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 8. In your pew Bible, that would be page 1021. Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy. It does not boast, it is not proud. It is not rude, it is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always preserves. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. Good morning. It is good to see each of you. If you're a guest this morning, again, we welcome you. It encourages us that you're here. We hope that you're having a great weekend. Maybe you're able to spend some extra time uh, with family or friends this holiday weekend, and, and we hope that it's a blessed weekend for all of us. It's good to be together to worship God. What a wonderful opportunity that is. If you would be open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians, the 13th chapter, the text has just been read. Uh, we won't be able to have slides this morning. I had technical difficulties in being able to save and transfer the file, and so uh, we'll try to mend that before next week, Uh, but uh, we will look forward to the time of of study together. I want to remind you to be having your ears open for the announcement of a college class that will be beginning very soon, and we're excited for that. We're thankful for our college age uh, that are part of this congregation, and we're thankful that Uh, You'll be able to be a part of a class that is geared specifically for you and your age, and we want to get the word out and tell you to be looking for that announcement. Also, remember that uh, the flu shot is being offered this afternoon. Sign up is at the information center. If you can prove that you're 65 years of age and older and have Medicaid, you can get that free of charge. If not, it's $25. Uh, for those that are younger, and uh, we hope that that'll be a benefit to our members and make life a little better for you in that way. Also, and especially, we want to be mindful in prayer of the Kefs as they will be leaving. Uh, The plans right now is for them to fly Tuesday, and uh, this time on this trip, they will fly to finalize the adoption of Misha and Karina, and we want to be prayerful that all of that will go just as it has been planned. Uh, we are thankful for the Kefs. We're thankful for their heart and for them opening up their home and for the difference that it can make in the lives of these two young people. Uh, we're excited uh, in just a few weeks to be able to see uh, them again. Let's be mindful of the whole family as that time nears and as they travel. Clara Barton, the founder of the Red Cross, She started it by recruiting nurses and doctors to help the wounded during the Civil War. One of her mutual friends, one of her friends spoke of a mutual friend's harm that she had done to Clara. And Clara acted as if she knew nothing about it. And then the friend clarified it and said, you remember that, don't you? She said, I know you do. And Clara looked at her and said, 
I distinctly remember forgetting that. Love does not keep a record of wrongdoing. You may have a different translation that was read this morning here in the 13th chapter when I read verse 5. Verse 5 ends in the New King James translation by saying, thanks no evil. That's really a hard rendering to understand exactly what's meant by that. The New American Standard, the NIV, makes it very clear. It's the idea that there is not an account being kept. It's the idea that there is no record being made of those who do wrong. When we think about for several weeks now, we've been looking at the 15 descriptions of love here. It's a portrait of Jesus Christ. Jesus kept these things perfectly. And we're to be a reprint of that so that we go out and we live in the way that Jesus lived. And it really is amazing to be able to think of the fact that we, like Jesus, can choose our behavior. I think sometimes we may take that for granted, but I want to remind you this morning, it's your choice. When someone does something good for you, it's your choice how you will respond. But when someone does something bad, evil, or painful towards you, it's still your choice on how you will respond. Much of these descriptions in 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter, 13th chapter, beginning at verse 4, where he says it suffers long. In other words, this love is not the monkey see, monkey do. Instead, it pauses and says, no matter what you've just done, I want to see what God's will is. And God's will is that we offer a merciful kindness. Let me offer what's useful for you, most of all, that's useful for your soul. Now, when we look at the third thing, he says that it does not envy. In other words, can you truly rejoice when there are others around you that have more than you have, that are better than you are at what you're doing, when others truly are blessed, can you rejoice in their blessing? But then the fourth thing he says, that it's not prayed itself. In other words, the next one is not puffed up. Prating itself is the idea that says, I want you to envy me. I want you to be jealous of me. I want to show you, and I'd like to one-up you if I can, about how good my life is. And that puffed up is that arrogant attitude that literally blinds us. We don't see ourselves the way we ought to see ourselves in humility if we're puffed up. We don't see others as we ought to see them. Genuine interest for their interest if we're puffed up. And the sad thing is we don't see God for who God is if we're puffed up. And because of that, we don't even see sin for what sin is when we're puffed up. And that brings us into the fifth verse. Does not behave rudely. You remember we talked about that idea that whenever... We're truly practicing love. We consider others before we act. How will my actions impact others? Instead of demanding my rights, I stop and say I want to be kind to others, not rude to others. But then also we looked in the last couple of weeks, does not seek its own and is not pro provoked. It is fine for us and it would be a healthy life for us to have interest in things. But what is sad is when we think others' interest is far below our interest. And so we're only interested in our things. And then when others around us have interest, we don't acknowledge it and we'll even allow ours to conflict with them. And because of that, we can easily become provoked. We get angry quickly when we think everything is ours. 
when we think the house is our house, when we think the TV is my TV, when we think the road is my road, when we think the place at work is my place at work, and all of a sudden everything is about seeking our own, and when everything is seeking our own, then when somebody infringes on what we have declared to be our own, we quickly lose our cool and we are provoked. You see this love, this whole deal, I loved, I was listening to a sermon this past week on this chapter, and this fellow said, all of these descriptions of love, he says it's all about not being big-headed, but being big-hearted. What a beautiful description. All of these descriptions is about making sure that we do not make life about us, but instead we have a heart that is compassionate. And we're going to get to that in just a few minutes. A heart that is fully compassionate toward others. What if that describes your heart? And what if someone does something that hurts you? And let's imagine that being like a spark. If your heart is defiled and it's not full of love, that spark could be like it's falling on gasoline. And it can ignite and will be provoked. But instead of being provoked, what we're studying this morning, did you notice the very next thing, and it's the end of verse 5, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not keep an account. In other words, instead of being quickly provoked, this spark is flying in and saying, look what you did to me. That's my fill in the blank. You didn't have the right to do fill in the blank to me. And we're quickly provoked. What about if instead we say, keeps no account. That spark... Instead of falling into gasoline, it falls into an ocean of love. And as quick as the spark falls into ocean, it's extinguished. And not only is it extinguished, the next day, it does not even keep an account of it. I'm not making a mental note of that. That's in the past. I've said to you many times, what we're studying is not easy. I want to challenge you. There'll be many of us here in this room that comparing ourselves to our neighbors on this topic, we could say we do pretty good. But this morning, I want us all to compare ourselves to our Lord. And do we really do what God has called us to do in being people that does not keep an account of wrongdoing? I'd like to show you two passages just by way of introduction. And I want to show you, like in my translation, I'm reading from that word thinketh, or in other translations that would be a, a record or an account of. I want to show you where that same word is used a couple other times in Scripture. It's used many times. We'll only look at a couple others. Flip over, you will, to 2 Corinthians, the 5th chapter. 2 Corinthians, the 5th chapter. Let's begin reading verse 18. The Bible is in your pew. It'll be around 1,027 or 28. 1,027, 28, if you want to grab a Bible in the pew there. 2 Corinthians, the 5th chapter. Let's begin reading at 18, 19, and 20. I'd like you to think about how <clears throat> here this passage is about reconciliation. In other words, if God holds everything to our what account, if he holds everything on record against us, you and I have no hope. And so notice how this same word is used here. We begin reading verse 18. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us. How did he reconcile us to himself? Through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing, that's the word, not imputing their trespasses to them and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. 
How did that work? We did wrong and the Lord looks down and he says, through Jesus Christ, I'm going to look down and I'm not going to see your sin anymore. I'm not going to allow it to be imputed. I'm not going to allow it to be to your account, to your record, to be thinking a calculation where I've remembered it and I have it there. How can this be? Look at 20 and 21 and we see the beautiful description of grace. Now when we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Beautiful picture of atonement there. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. I'm not going to allow your sin to be imputed upon you since you've come to me through Christ. Now when I see you, I'm going to allow Christ's righteousness to be imputed to you. So I'm going to look at the ledger book and I'm going to see Christ's righteousness, not your sin. What a beautiful picture. And it helps us understand this word here of accounting or record. Let's say it one more time. Romans the fourth chapter. Let's begin reading at verse 8, Romans the fourth chapter. Blessed, a quote from the Old Testament, blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. That's the word. Blessed is the man. The Lord will not impute sin. He will not hold his sins on record against him or account against him. What a beautiful thought. And then he gives an example in 9, 10, and 11 of how under the old covenant, Abraham was counted righteous even before he was ever circumcised. And that kind of blew the mind of the Jews, and that's a whole other study. But what we see is this word of, of imputing righteousness. In other words, when did God look down and impute righteousness upon Abraham? And we know it was by faith according to this, but we'll just read it. I mainly want you to especially see this word and then think about the beautiful fact that through Christ our sins are not imputed, but his righteousness is. But here it is talking about Abraham and faith. Verse 9, does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only? or upon the uncircumcised also. For we say that faith was accounted, that's the word, that's the exact word, was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted, same word again, while he was circumcised and uncircumcised. Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. For he received the sign of circumcision, seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all who believe, though they are uncircumcised that righteousness might be what imputed to them also four times in about four verses he uses that word to say is it counted to Abraham or is it not is it counted to those who have faith is it not and as beautiful it is to study grace you realize that in one sense that's not the topic this morning now we're kingdom people. The only way we can be a part of the kingdom is by the grace of God, that Christ's righteousness be imputed to us. But especially this morning, we want to think about based upon Christ, what he has done for us, that now our sins are remembered no more. Now he expects love out of us. And love says, I will not remember others' transgressions either. What Christ has done to me I will now offer to others. Living out in the world, the consistency of this would never be practiced. But for people who truly recognize what it is to be a Christian, this is one of the great blessings we're forgiven and one of the great responsibilities we forgive.
I was able to transfer two pictures, I hope. I've been saving this illustration back for a lot of months, and my heart sank this morning when I figured out I wasn't going to be able to have a PowerPoint. Do we have a picture of... I know this isn't going to mean a lot to some of you, but the, the application will, okay? But that right there, if any of you have ever driven through Cathis Creek in Murray County, that's a farming valley where Lewis, Hickman, and Murray County come together. That picture there is 100 years old. A hundred years ago, that was a large country store that pulled business from several communities. That was the old-timey version of Super Walmart. That's where you could go, and when I would walk in the front door of that store as a little boy, there'd be a potbelly stove there, and I'd get a soft drink called a kick, and I would drink it there around that, winter, that stove in the wintertime. And over to my right would be all kind of fabric and threads and needles and other household goods. And then scattered around in there would also be a lot of feed and harnesses and leather products and ropes and chains. And as you circle back around, there'd be some groceries over here. And you could buy the hoop cheese or you could have just one slice if you'd like that. And Vienna sausages and all kind of things. You could sell your furs there, your hogs, your chickens. Because that literally was a way of doing trade. You could get your horse or your mule shoe just behind the place. You could buy country ham or sausage. It was an amazing place to stop. My great-grandfather, Papa Savage, owned that store. He is the fellow on the right side of that picture with children surrounding him. My great-uncle Jesse Savage was the one who, when I could remember, owned the store. Any of you that several years ago would remember Blue Seal Flour and Cornmeal? In this area, it sold all throughout the southeast, and at that day and time, it competed with Martha White. My uncle Jesse and my uncle Benton, they owned the, the controlling shares of Blue Seal Flour in Columbia, Tennessee. He's the little bitty fella standing on the barrel there beside his dad. Now the little girl just on the other side of the father is my grandmother, Rebecca Shannon. Her handwriting is all in this book. This book that I hold right here is a ledger of accounts in 1916 and 1917 of the Savage Store. For example... I can open this book to page 54 and Sam Brooks had a running account like almost everybody in that community had with the Savage Store. That's the literal pages, the literal transactions that took place, the handwriting. And you say, well, who's Sam Brooks? I figured all of you would know that Sam Brooks is Kevin Hines' great-grandfather. And they lived just right behind the country store. Now, Amanda Dillard, Papa Savage, is also her great-grandfather. And then also, Ann Bates, it's her grandfather, right? She may have to strike me out on all this. A lot of history goes back here, but what I want to do is I just want to take a minute 
And I want to remind you of this simple transaction. How many of you remember the days when you walked in a country store? Am I the only old guy here? And you walked in a country store and you just laid whatever you want on the counter. Obviously they knew your name. They knew you from three generations back. And they just wrote down. And you stood there and visited and they wrote down and they closed the book and you walked out. And then when you sold a crop, it might only be twice or three times a year, you would come back in once you had some cash and you'd say, I'm here to pay my bill. And what you're looking at right there on the right side, see how few of lines there are on the right column there? That's because that's the only times that there was the sale of, of, of crops or whatever. And only a few times a year you walked in. For example, when, when you look at the shoes, I'm looking back up in June of 22, of, of, on the 24th date, shoes and nails were sold. Now you know that's not human shoes when it goes with nails, right? That's, that was 27 cents. And then shirting was sold. That would be a material. That was 88 cents. But then on July 13th, and, and it had been since May, but on July 13th, Sam Brooks came in and he paid off in cash $4.35 and he settled his account with them. When I flip over to just some other pages, I see another one here where a, a bed spring and mattress set was sold. You see, my great-grandparents they would ride a train into Nashville, Tennessee and go down on 3rd Avenue and they would buy from a wholesaler, load the things on a train and drive back to cross bridges and get in a horse and wagon and drive 15 miles and they'd bring back everybody's goods that they had ordered. But you know what was interesting as, as I look at this? On this same page on 200, this same family, you know how they paid a big part of their debt on this particular payment? They sold their eggs. When I look at this other one, I see that they bought overalls and even an overall jacket. If you remember what those are, same material. It's just a heavy jacket. The nice ones were lined and the other ones weren't. And you know how they paid their debt? They paid off $53 in hogs and $5.85 by selling peas. You know, it's interesting. This family right here, they bought some groceries. Sometime it would just say, buy wife. And, and, um, but when they got ready to pay their bill two different times in the year, they paid their bill by selling turkeys. They would go months and not pay. How would they know what to pay? It was all accounted for. The ledger had been made. And maybe it's been months and months since they paid their bill, but when it was time, they came in and the ledger was made. It works in business. As a matter of fact, it's called healthy business practices or wise business practices. But you know what? It doesn't work so well when we're talking about the faults of others. There's a lot of husbands or wives here this morning that they've got a running account of what their spouse has been doing and not doing that they don't like. There are parents here that's been keeping a running account of their children. There are people here that they have neighbors and you've been watching how many times the neighbors parked on your grass and you can tell right now because you've been keeping account. The times that you feel like they've mistreated you and you can name them all off right now. 
Extended family that hasn't been kind to you over the holidays and you can tell all the years that they haven't been kind. Do you see what God is pleading for us to do here? He's pleading for you to take that co-worker or that fellow student, that fellow student at, at school that has mistreated you and he's pleading with you to realize that you can either choose to love them or you can choose to not keep an account of it and let it go. Or not, or, but through that love, not keep an account and let it go. Or you can hang on to it and become a bitter person. But even worse than the bitterness, become somebody who is not like your Lord. That's the big difference. I'd like for us, for the last few minutes we have, if you will, turn to Matthew, the 18th chapter. Matthew, the 18th chapter, we have a powerful story where Jesus gives us. I'd like to divide this into three scenes as we read it, and then the lesson's yours. Look at verse 21, Matthew, the 18th chapter. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. That sounds generous, doesn't it? Seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but into 70 times seven. Wow, what a big difference. Continue forgetting is what Jesus is saying. 23, therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king. Remember, we've been studying kingdom living. If we live like the king, what are we going to do? Here's what we're going to do. A certain king wanted to settle accounts. There's the word. With his servants. And when he had begun settling accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. But as he was not able to pay his master as he commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and that all that he had and that payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him saying, Master, have patience with me. I will pay you all. Friends, there would have been no way he could have paid this debt. But he's just begging. Please let me try to pay you. Then the master of the servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. What do we learn in the kingdom? Kingdom living is all about forgiving. What if they have done something that's totally wrong and they can't even make it right? Kingdom living is all about forgiving. Scene two. Scene 2, verse 28. But that servant, who had just been forgiven more than he could ever repay, went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe. So his fellow servants fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And he would not, but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. 10,000 talents. A talent was around 75 pounds of either silver or gold. It is estimated that 10,000 talents was a, between 150 and 160,000 years of salary. Let that sink in. This man had just owed the king 160,000 years of salary. A man works for 3,100 years, 50 years. Can I say that again? A man works for 50 years, and he does that for 3,100 lifetimes. He still hadn't paid his debt. And he gets forgiven. That's why he could never have paid it back. It's far too great. And he goes out, and he grabs a man around the throat, that owes him a hundred days salary. From now to January, the guy's debt would be paid off. He grabs him around the throat. He's just been forgiven more than he could ever have ever paid back. 
And now he takes a man and he throws him in prison. That's scene two. Scene three is people in the kingdom are aware of it. Verse 31, so when the fellow servants saw what he had done, they were very grieved and came and told their master all that they had done. His master, after he had called him, said to him, you wicked servant, I forgive you all the debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the tortures. I want you to notice that phrase. Delivered him to the tortures until he should pay all that was due to him. So my heavenly father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother's trespasses. Scene number one, I learned this. God is willing to forgive me more than I could ever pay back. You don't have enough money. You don't have enough goodness. You don't have enough righteousness on your own. You don't have enough of anything to have one sin forgiven. And you've got a lifetime of sin. It's only by the grace and the mercy of God that we can be a part of the kingdom and be saved. And how pathetic is it if here we are, a saved person, we go out in the world tomorrow and someone hurts us and we write it down in our mind and we keep an account of it. And God says, wait a minute. I've forgiven you of all of this. And you're going to remember? You're going to remember this little thing? The third thing I need to learn is that Christian people, all they know, all they know is forgiveness. The very core of Christianity is forgiveness. You talk to anybody that knows Christianity, they know about Jesus dying on the cross. Why? For our sins to be forgiven. It's the greatest blessing. It's the very mark of identity of Christianity and it is the mandate that is required of all believers. And so when this man did not practice what he knew to practice, all the others were grieved because they knew this man had missed the mark horribly. And so the king goes out and holds him accountable and says, I'm going to take you to the tortures. I used to think that that was probably talking about eternity and only eternity. And I suppose it is talking about eternity. But there is a lot of torture that goes on in the lives of people that will not forgive long before they ever leave this earth. If you are a person that constantly makes marks in your mind, keeping account of what people do to you, I can tell you, you don't know the peace that God intends for you to know. You don't know the joy that passes understanding that God intends for you to know. You don't know the joy of salvation that David longed for. Because there is a wonderful peace and joy for people who have been forgiven. And because they have been forgiven, they quickly do not take things to record. Instead, they remember no more. What I learned today, number one, evil mental bookkeeping can harm my spiritual life and destroy my peace. Number two, forgiveness closes the books on what others have done. Number three, love demands forgiveness. Number four, God is love. I realize it's not easy. I guess we've studied one of the hardest things we could study. To be harmed seven times 70 and keep no record. But I also need to realize this. 
we have just studied the very core of Christianity. If we can't get this one, the Lord says, you can't get my forgiveness. Very different from the world, but how blessed we are if we practice it. This morning, can we help you in any way? Are you ready to become a Christian, be immersed into Christ as a believer, willing to repent and confess before men? Maybe you've begun that journey and along the way you've lost sight of that journey. Maybe others and their actions have led you off of what you need to be. And maybe this morning you need to humbly repent. And maybe you need to stop looking at what everybody else does and you need to start looking at yourself and what God has done for you. If there's anything we can do, 